BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello, Melisande was Queen of Jerusalem in the 12th century AD and held power there alongside three different kings, her father, her husband and her son, and sometimes against them. The Crusader states were a new Frankish project, begun as they captured Jerusalem in 1099, and vitally she balanced the interests of the first Crusader settlers and the new arrivals from France as the states were threatened by infighting as well as by their Islamic neighbours. With me to discuss Melisande, Queen of Jerusalem, are Natasha Hodgson, Senior Lecturer in Medieval History and Director of the Centre for the Study of Religion and Conflict at Nottingham Trent University. Danielle Park, Visiting Lecturer at Royal Holloway University of London, and Catherine Lewis, Senior Lecturer in History at the University of Huddersfield. Catherine Lewis, what brought the Franks to the Eastern Mediterranean at the end of the 11th century? The Franks were in the Eastern Mediterranean at the behest of Pope Urban II, who inspired this huge military campaign which we now call the First Crusade. And it was essentially aimed at recapturing Jerusalem from Islamic rule. It had been under Islamic rule since the 7th century. And Urban essentially wanted Jerusalem to become a Christian power again and for the surrounding area to become Christian as well. So they achieved this, as you've said, in July 1099. They captured the city of Jerusalem. But then, of course, the next step was to consolidate this capture. If you want to maintain Christian power in the area, you need to establish territorial power bases. So we have a process of several years of consolidation, during which time we have the development of four distinct crusader states, as they're now known. So the most important of these is at Jerusalem. We have a kingdom at Jerusalem. Then we have a principality at Antioch. And we have two counties, one at Tripoli and one at Edessa. How was Jerusalem organised? How big was it for a start? What sort of place was it? Originally, it was literally just the the city of Jerusalem. But then during the reign of Baldwin I, who's the first king of Jerusalem, the territory really expands um, up to the Mediterranean and takes in a lot of the the seaboard. Have we any idea of population or anything like that? Um, I I don't know precise numbers of population off the top of my head, although I think one of the things to say is that the, the numbers of Franks, so the ruling class, is very small. What did they try to create when they came, the Crusaders, did did they set out to create a kingdom or what did they set out to do? It's not, it's not clear that they really set out with any absolute objective in mind, but what they did set up was what they were familiar with, essentially. So they import Western forms of jurisdiction, um, law, custom and so on from their own areas in, in what we would now call France. So you have a system whereby the, the chief man in each of these areas, uh, king, prince and count, he has a load of vassals underneath him who hold land, who have obligations and loyalty to him. And they also perform a very important role in advising him. They, I suppose they form what we would now call a government, essentially. What was the reaction? I mean, these comparatively few crusaders compared to the rest of the population, how, how did they manage to impose their will and their system on, on Jerusalem? And on the other states? Well, they, in, by military might in the first instance, um, through just to sheer force, I think. Uh, but then I suppose the, the various, the kinds of institutions that they set up, um, for example, they import a manorial system into the countryside. And it's difficult to know, I suppose, for a lot of the local population, how much things would have changed just because there was a change in, in lordship at the top. But evidently, over a period of about 10, 15 years, it is very successful and they have established themselves. Is it a replica of the feudal system in any way? It is, except we don't really like the term feudal system. Oh, I don't we? System. No, no, no I'm afraid. Oh, well. It's... it's <laughs> It's it's a bit too neat. It makes it look as though there's one universal rule that applies across Europe, which there wasn't. But it is feudal, in, in inverted commas, in the sense of being all about land holding, and that's what's absolutely crucial. Natasha Hodgson, Melisande was born after the First Crusade, which was 1099. Who was her mother and why was that important? Melisande's mother is a woman called Morphia. She's the daughter of Gabriel of Melitene. She's Armenian by birth but Greek Orthodox by religion. And this means she's kind of slightly closer to the Frankish religion in some respects. Morphia is significant. She's the wife of Baldwin of Bork, so she marries the Count of Edessa, who ruled there until 1118, 
when he follows his previous liege lord, Baldwin of Boulogne, onto the throne of Jerusalem and becomes Queen of Jerusalem, Morphea does. And so where do we go from there? Well, we think from the sources, it's, they suggest that they had a reasonably happy marriage. So they had four children together, four daughters. The eldest, Melisande, we think was probably born after 1109, followed fairly closely by That's Alice. a long time after 1109. How new to 1109? <laughs> <laughs> well, the 1110 or the 15... No, yeah. Anyway, that'll do. I mean, we, we, do. We're normally kind of judging these things by age of canonical age of marriage so they have to be at least 12 before they can get married (laughs) but yeah we think Alice may be around uh, 1111 and then Hodierna possibly 1115 to 1117 and finally Iveta the youngest was born around 1119 20 and it's sort of at that time they move so Baldwin becomes king of Jerusalem they all move down together he waits for Morphea to arrive before he gets crowned so she's present for the coronation Is it unusual that you have the first of all that you have a coronation Mm. there and secondly that it's a Frankish Christian and an Armenian Christian together is that regarded as anything that says well this is unusual and it's good or bad or what Hmm. She's a Greek Orthodox by religion and that kind of means she's she's a bit closer to the Latin faith and we know very little about her own kind of involvement in, um, and sort of personal devotions. A lot of what we think we know about comes from Melisande's later preference for certain patronage and those kind of things. So I don't think so. There were quite a few people who married into established Christian families, whether Armenian or Greek Orthodox. They brought with them impressive dowries. Morphea's dowry was 50,000 gold bezants, uh, which, which obviously sort of helped Go them. Peasants, yeah, which then helped the Crusaders to establish themselves as they were going through this ongoing process of warfare. So the money that they brought was important, but the links to the established nobility and potential Christian allies were also really important. What united the Christians, uh, uh, the Crusader Christians, and what divided them? There is a lot of rivalry between the Franks in this during this process of settlement. You know, people are seeking to establish their own territories and, and develop themselves. Um, there's also rivalry with um, indigenous Christian populations over the, um, the the important sites of pilgrimage that the Crusaders want access to, and certainly, you know, in some cases, other groups of Christians might be treated more as second-class citizens in some of the crusader-held areas. Can I bring in the religious uh, element in this? They came for a Christian purpose. Did they achieve that Christian purpose? What was it and did they achieve it? Most historians nowadays accept that Jerusalem was the goal of the First Crusade. Uh, it comes across in the Crusader charters and, and all of those other things. But the First Crusaders, when they set out, couldn't possibly know that they would have been successful in doing that. I mean, they, they achieved more than they could possibly have thought. You know, so what did they achieve, which was more than? The, the, the return of the Holy City. I mean, that is the big success of the First Crusade. Holy City was brought back into Christian. Yes, it's, yeah. it's, and, and a Latin patriarch is established, Arnulf of Schock, uh, is, is put in place, the, the, the first patri- Latin patriarch of Jerusalem. He doesn't actually last very long because the Pope doesn't approve of that candidate, but that's another story. Um, this is what's written about time and time again in Western Chronicles as the sort of major success. But the problem is then how to hold it with this you know, very small minority of Latins who remain behind. Because a lot of people go home. They see themselves as having fulfilled their duty. It was a very hard-fought campaign and very many of them have responsibilities in the West that they have to return home for. And uh, we'll come back to what happens then in a moment. I want to go on now to Danielle. Um, let's let's turn to Melisande. Let's bring her into the picture as the program's about her. Um, she's the eldest daughter. How does she develop? What, what sources are available for you to tell us about her? Well, the main sources that we have that tell us about her and what she's doing as the Queen of Jerusalem are the charters. So these are essentially the governmental records of donations, of new buildings being established, of land grants, and they tell us who is involved at a governmental level, what they're doing this for, and who the witnesses are. So they tell us who are the key players around the King and Queen at a given time. And they're always sealed with an image of the King usually on horseback and the Queen usually with either a flower, an orb 
or a bird of prey, usually a hawk, as signs of their secular authority. So really this is about impressing on a permanent record. This is a decision that the ruler has made, this is why it's been made and that it's going to last in perpetuity. So that's one of our main governmental records. And there are quite a lot of these? There's quite a few of them that exist from Falcon Melisande's reign. And anything else in the sources? We also have quite a few letters, at least four letters that survive from Abbot Bernard of Clairvaux, so one of the foremost churchmen of his age. Very famous Cistercian abbot, responsible for a significant amount of preaching (laughs) on the Second Crusade. And he writes at least four letters to her. Some of them are quite simple. Here are some pilgrims I would like you to take care of. Here are some pre-Monstratensian brothers. I would like you to look after them. But two others were written at quite crucial points within her reign. One just after the death of her husband, Fulk of Anjou. And that one tells her that essentially if she should be the queen, but in order to be a successful queen of Jerusalem without her husband, she should really act as a man because then nobody will have any cause to ask where is the king of Jerusalem because the queen is being the king of Jerusalem. Before we leave sources, we've got to go to William of Tyre. Is he probably the most important source? He's certainly the most important narrative source that we have. So he's a key individual, especially by the 1170s. He's really coming into his own. By 1170, he is the tutor to King Amalric's son, the future King Baldwin IV. By 1174, he's the Chancellor of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, so that gives him access to all of those charters and the laws of the kingdom. And by 1175, he's reached the pinnacle of his ecclesiastical career, so he never quite gets the top job that he really wants. He never gets to be the Patriarch of Jerusalem. But in 1175, he becomes the Archbishop of Tyre, So he's in a significant ecclesiastical role. So by 1170 onwards, when he's writing his history from, we think, around 1167, he's extremely well placed to know exactly what's going on within the kingdom. He seems to be quite close to King Amalric. They have quite a few conversations about history. But for Melisande's reign, while he tells us that this is the point where he is an eyewitness to the kingdom of Jerusalem and its events, He is probably not actually situated in the East. He's probably in the West pursuing his university education. So he is the best we've got. West being the West of Europe. The West West of Europe, yeah. yeah. So he's the best that we've got, but we have to accept that he comes with a lot of caveats, that a lot of what he's working with would essentially be court gossip, the memory of people that were there at the time, but he doesn't necessarily have first-hand knowledge. How far do you think he's... Excuse me. How far do you think he's varnishing the uh, those he writes about? I think it's definitely a concern because Melisande is really a key component of the dynasty. All of the kings that he's writing about are descended from her. She is unusual in that she's a woman in Jerusalem carrying on that line. Previously, it's always gone through the male line. So this is the first time it goes through the female line. And his patron as an author is her second son. Amalric. So there is a possibility that he wouldn't want to offend his patron by telling too many accounts of the misdeeds of his mother or painting Amalric's mother Melisande in anything less than this paragon of queenship. We've gone slightly before our horse to market, really, but Catherine, can we um, say, tell people how Melisande came to be the queen? What happened that this woman uh, became queen of Jerusalem and on we go from there? Well, the, the basic answer to that is that Baldwin II doesn't have any sons. So as we've heard, he has four daughters. And there are attempts, I think, to get him to remarry when he first becomes king. And, and maybe there's a suggestion that he could remarry and, and father a son, but he but he doesn't. So by the time we get to the later 1120, so Melisande's about 20 herself um, at this point, Clearly, she is now being identified as his heir. And in the charters that Danielle mentions, we start to have her name associated with Baldwin's. And the law permits her to be queen. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the the crucial thing is that the Baldwin II obviously wants the, the monarchy to go to his descendants. He wants his bloodline to stay on the throne. And that's the really crucial thing. So Melisande, as his elder daughter, will inherit. And obviously then the identity of her husband becomes very important. And so is there any objection when he... Does he name her, say, when I die, she will be my heir? He, he names her as his as his heir in some of the, the charters, yes. Um, and this is before she's married. And is there any evidence that people then uh, educate her for the job? 
There's no evidence for that, but I would argue, given what else we know about women's role in politics, that it's entirely conceivable that actually not just she, but but all of her sisters would have been educated. Women needed to know how politics worked. Um, Queens, for example, had their own households, their own um, estates and revenue that they were expected to manage in support of their husband. And sometimes women would find themselves in sort of political caretaker roles if their husbands were away on military campaign or if they had minor sons. Do we know anything straightforward about her at this time? I mean, what would she look like? Well, William Patine never describes her, does he? I think he just says she's very thin and that Baldwin III looks like her. Yeah, that's, that's about mm. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and we know that Baldwin III um, was, was blonde. Yes. And he said that, you know, he was good looking as well and said that uh, so he, he looked like his mother in that respect, but that she was rather spare. Not about it. <laughs> but the, the problem was... I mean, she was the Queen, so that she could, she was designated to be the Queen. But the Queen, one of the things that the Queen, maybe the most important thing, is that she could not lead an army into battle. Yes. And they needed a man for that yes. at that time. And they went looking for one. And how did it look and what did they find? At the time that Baldwin was thinking about a suitable husband for Melisande, it was around sort of 11, 26, 27. Um, he lost his own wife, Morphia, we think, around that time. He was also arranging marriages for um, another of his daughters, Alice of Antioch. At that time, she gets married to the new heir, Beaumont II. But they wanted someone from the West because this would bring over potential new recruits for a new crusade, resources, wealth, money... And um, having had a chat with the nobles of Jerusalem, they settled on Fulk V of Anjou. And why Fulk? Well, he'd already been out to the Holy Land in the first place. He came out in 1120. He had kept knights there, 100 knights there um, in the service on crusade for a year. So they knew he was rich. And he'd made quite a lot of good friends over there. And um, I think that the the nobility thought, yes, this would be a great candidate. Um, He was a very experienced ruler. He'd been ruling Anjou since 1109. He had children. Was his wife dead? uh, He had children already. He had Geoffrey of Anjou, who then obviously later went on to become the the father of of Henry Was his wife dead or did he just desert her and get get to to Jerusalem? (laughs) (laughs) I believe she died in 1126. Conveniently, he was available. Uh, he was available. They heard that he was available. Yeah, his wife Ehrenberger sadly had passed away. So yes, he was. He was kind of an ideal candidate, a bit older than What's Melisande, possibly about twenty years older. When William of Tyre writes about him, he says, "Oh, he was practically ancient." But the suggestion is that William was maybe had met him in later life and was, you know, actually probably when he was about sixty, which is why he was saying so. So he's probably in his forties when he gets married. So Paul comes over to be the husband of Melisande, and he thinks, as I understand it, Danielle, you're going to put me right here, that he's going to be king of Jerusalem, and that's that, and she's going to be his wife who doesn't do much. But she didn't think it was going to be like that at all. So what happened? Well, they seem to have very different expectations of what this marriage means for both of them. So Melisande has been introduced, as Catherine said, in the charters as the heiress to the kingdom. So she has every expectation that she is going to continue to fulfil that role within government, that she'll be at the side of her husband and carry on as she has being at the side of her father. She will be the queen to Falk's king. Falk seems to have been given the impression that he is coming over to Jerusalem, he has to marry the woman to get to the throne, and then he is going to be king in his own right. So he is expecting to be king, sole ruler, without having to pay much attention to his wife, more or less as he had been Count of Anjou, without having to pay too much deference to his wife there. He is expecting to be the sole ruler. And we can see this in some of the chronicles from Anjou. So these are written from 1107 onwards. They're added to in the 12th century. And they tell us quite simply that Fulk married the daughter of the king and became king. And that's pretty much the last time Melisande gets a look in in that chronicle. Orderic Vitalis, who's writing a little bit later in France in the 1130s, he tells us more or less the same story. The count married the king's daughter and became king. What do we know about Melisande's reaction to this? 
Catherine? We don't really know anything at all about her own personal reaction to it. Um, all we know is that she effectively gets excluded mm. from government and Fulk, with this understanding that he's king, he takes the, the business of the realm into his own hands. Only his name appears on just, charters yeah. to start with. Um, so he just assumes it's going to be a conventional arrangement. But even though we don't know her reaction, I think we can assume that she clearly has other ideas about it and that this is not this is not what she had been led to expect. She'd been led to expect that it would be more like a co-rulership, essentially. So we know about her absence, but not her presence? Yes, we don't. We don't. But how many years is there nothing in the documents? Four or five years? 11.36, when she really starts to come back into her own in the charters as the Queen, and that's where well, we suddenly see that she's there, where uh-huh. she hasn't been before. Previously, it's been Fulk, who his father-in-law Baldwin II made king, and that's the only allusion there is to the fact that he's there through marriage. Whereas once you get into 1136, you see them together. So it is I, Fulk, the king of Jerusalem, together with my wife, Melisande, the queen of Jerusalem. And the way that it's phrased, the verbs all become plural. Whereas before 1136, it was I, Fulk, do this. It becomes we assign, we give, we grant, we concede. And that goes all the way through the charter with that construction. That was obviously a big change. What happened? There's quite a lot of reaction to Fulk's assumption of power, especially on the death of Melisande's father, Baldwin II, in 1131. By that stage, they have a young son already, so they've, they've provided an heir for the kingdom in, in the form of the young Baldwin III. But he seems to be, as Danielle said, you know, ruling in his own right, not really paying attention to the established nobility, putting in his new Angevin cronies, and this causes a lot of upset, and it actually results so in a rebellion. So he's bringing his pals from France yeah. uh, to run the place. <clears throat> Essentially, yes. yeah. And what we have is a state of rebellion. He's he's also acting as regent for Antioch at this stage and kind of running backwards and forwards, trying to keep the nobles happy there and the nobles in Jerusalem but they're not impressed with his exclusion of Melisande from power and they rally round her. But there seems to be a key incidence or, or succession of two or three incidents which, which made the change. That's what I've mm. read. Can you tell us authoritatively what those were? <laughs> Matters really come to a head with the involvement of a chap called Hugh, Count of Jaffa. Now, Hugh is someone who comes across from the West to take up his inheritance, but his father had been had been Count of Jaffa. He's also a cousin of Melisande and very close to her. This allows people to start fanning flames of jealousy, according to William of Tyre, and saying, oh, there's something a bit more going on here. Too close. Mm, too close. And it didn't help, perhaps, that he was also very handsome and had well, a great reputation for <laughs> military prowess. Who knows? Um, and... Uh, and he was the same age as Melisande, roughly, so perhaps they were close. And they went off together now and then to do things. Not, I don't, I'm not being silly. <laughs> no, 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 there really isn't any innuendo there. Yes. They worked on stuff together. He was one of her partisans, mm. and he was actually married himself. He had a good marriage, but the marriage put out a couple of the established nobles, and this maybe then led to accusations of treason as well. But what really spurred it, it seems to me, because Mm. there's a lot going on and you've been very clear about that, is that someone who could have been an agent of Fulk stabbed him, wounded him very, very badly. And that that switched the sympathy back to Melisande and away from Hughes being the dastardly chap trying to take her away and to Melisande being the heroic queen, much better than this man Fulk. And all the other things gathered around that he was an Angevin, he was bringing his cronies in Mm. and the former cronies didn't like it and so on. So that was the change. Yeah, it's a real swing of popular opinion. Fulk makes a terrible faux pas, basically, in his campaign against Hugh. He does try to get one of his men to fight him in a duel. That doesn't work. Hugh runs away to Jaffa and allies with Ascalon. He allies with the Muslim enemy. And that also really lowers his esteem in in people's eyes and his vassals turn him over to the king. Hugh is exiled, but while he's waiting in Jerusalem, dicing for his ship... Um, Yes, someone tries to stab him. And it seems almost unbelievable that it wasn't Fulk who ordered this hit. But it's not successful. And the Queen is furious. And people say the King isn't safe around Melisande. Daniel, so from then on, Melisande in the records, Mm. as you've read in your your documentary, she reasserts herself. She's there all the time. It's we all the time. So what she's doing all the time now? Well, from that point, William of Tyre tells us that Melisande's wrath is 
as Natasha has said, is so dramatic that it's not safe even for the king to be in her presence. So William of Tyre says that they come to a reconciliation. Really? I mean, you get the... How is that put? He says that even the king feared for his safety, as did his supporters. So that suggests that Melisande did a, she have her own private guard, or did she have a particularly bad temper with her own <laughs> private guard? No, it just says quite a lot more yeah, about it than it just. Does. So what was going on there? Well, it seems the way that William of Tyre describes it that it is essentially a performative display mm. of her righteous anger, yeah. and by putting it in that way, it's not. This is not the anger of somebody who's had an affair in court out, been caught out. This is the anger of somebody who has had something terrible done to them and has every right to be this angry about it. So by making her presence felt in that way, it becomes very clear to folk over time that he's only going to be able to be the king in any meaningful sense if he works cooperatively with his wife. And William of Tyre has the line, he becomes so uxorious that he doesn't even dare to do anything trivial without the Queen's consent. And that's where we really start to see after 1136 that they are working together in every single charter and apart from Antioch which is a different case because there he's a regent not the ruler you don't see them apart you see them joined at the hip in all of these charters Can you give us one or two instances where they are doing this together or that together building a castle Mm -hmm. passing a law whatever it is Yeah Um, so they build the castle of Beth Giblin together so about 12 kilometres outside of Ascalon they also are closely involved together in the building of the convent of Bethany So this eventually goes on to be where Melisande's younger sister, Yvetta, is set up as abbess. But in its earliest incarnation, this is the two of them working together to extend an existing site of interest for pilgrims. They have two churches constructed there, one for pilgrims, one for the community of nuns. And Winnie Retire tells us that Melisande has this fortified with a tower because this couple have clearly realised that that's something that needs to be done for the safety of the community. Catherine, Catherine, can we just develop this presence of Melisande now? Because um, we, we don't know quite enough about her. Well, does her Armenian half, as it were, help in the way she is queen? I, th- I think it could well have done. I think um, that sense, my feeling that she's probably been prepared for the role in combination with her background would certainly be helpful. And I think one of the things to say here, so we've heard that Fulk has to go off to Antioch quite a lot, and the fact that Melisande and other queens can't exercise um, a warrior's skills or they can't lead armies has sometimes been held to hinder their exercise of authority. But we could say that actually it functions in quite the reverse way because Fulk can go away to Antioch and deal with the problems there, safe in the knowledge that the day-to-day running of Jerusalem, so politics and law and the economy and so on, is under Melisande's rule and she can ensure continuity and security. So we could say that actually that kind of traditional caretaker role that women often and have allows her to be more politically active precisely because her husband and then later her son are the ones that are going off and involving themselves in military activities. We say casually money. She was allowed to run the the estates. That... We, we, don't, we don't know no. specifically, but I think we assume so just because of the way that she appears in the charters. I think there's no reason to think that she wasn't the one governing in his absence. And we certainly know from other comparable examples in Western Europe that that definitely is the case, that women are, are running these systems in the absence of husbands or sons. Catherine, um, the, there's a hunting incident mm. uh, that Fulk has in 1143. It doesn't seem to have been murdered. It seems to have been a horrible accident. That's yes. one of the descriptions you give. Uh, how did she hold on to power after that? Yes, Fulk, Fulk is, is killed very suddenly out hunting a, a hare or a rabbit or something with a lance, apparently, which seems a bit overkill. But he falls <laughs> off, or he, he falls and the horse falls on him and there's this terrible accident. He dies. Melisande, Melisande is absolutely distraught. And it leaves... Baldwin III is 13 at this time. And that's their son, though. That's right, their son, and yeah. their eldest son. And uh, William of Tyre, well, he tells us two things. So he says that royal power passed to Melisande by hereditary right. He says that Baldwin III is crowned along with Melisande. But he also says that Melisande is ruling because Baldwin is not yet of age. A minor. So, yes, exactly. So one way of looking at this is to say that she's functioning as a kind of regent. However, when Baldwin III gets to the age of 15, she doesn't step down and some modern historians have been quite negative about her at this point and have said that her actions in the later 1140s and early 1150s are essentially her holding Baldwin back from power that 
that was rightfully his and they talk about her being ambitious and scheming and that she should have stepped down and they but, talk about her holding on to him by, and there's a there's a there's a, there's a very um oh the tentacles Yes. There's, yes, there's there's one description of her extending her tentacles to try and hinder Baldwin's power, which is, is sort of amusing, but it also gives you the sense of a kind of monstrous, unnatural um, authority. But the other way of looking at it is to say that actually she's not his regent, she's a co-ruler with him. And that there's actually no evidence that, that people were clamouring for Baldwin to be given the throne. William of Tyre, albeit that we have to handle him carefully, does tell us that Baldwin III was rather a badly behaved young man, quite promiscuous, he liked gaming and, and women and so on. And it may be that there genuinely was a feeling that Baldwin wasn't quite ready to take power. Melisande has a lot of support among the barons and among churchmen and so on. And so this idea that she should have stepped down, I think we need to be careful of perhaps importing backwards some more modern views about where we think women belong in politics. Maybe she didn't think it was all that good. You never know. I mean, uh, Natasha, Natasha Watson. But he did assert himself when he was about 23. How did he do that? They ruled together for a while, and, and the situation really begins to unravel I think around 1149 when a lot of other disasters start to happen in the other crusader states um, and the the big point of conflict sort of flares up between Baldwin and Melisande in 1151 to 2 and it, it, it revolves essentially around this kind of group of people who are inflaming the king against his mother and saying you know you're old enough to rule now you're, you're <clears throat> they, they use a rather crude phrase in the Latin, but <laughs> essentially meaning hanging off his mother's teat. Uh, and you ought to be, uh, you know, kind of ruling in your own right. Some of these people, we, William of Tyre doesn't quite tell us who those people are, uh, but we know that um, Melisande's constable, Manasses of Hierge, seems to have ruffled a few feathers, especially with the Ibelin family. So um, there's a question of whether those those might have been the ones who were involved in doing this. Um, but um, so so Melisande was relying on this constable to lead the army, um, and um, you know Baldwin kind of was thinking this should be my role. So what did Baldwin um, do? So he he first of all challenges his mum, and he says, you know, look, I want to be crowned in my own right, and I, I want I'm going to set, set the date for Easter. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I want to do it on my own. The patriarch actually kind of refuses and then tries to talk him out of it. He then says, he sort of tries to change the date and then basically just appears in Jerusalem uh, wearing the laurel as if he has been crowned in his own right when he hasn't. So it's a bit of a trick and a bit of a, a, bit of a sort of show. Um, but how but it does, does he break convince... away? We haven't got to the point. Then all of a mm. sudden he seems to gather some sort of force together, you tell me how big it is, and take half of the yes. kingdom. Which half and when does he do that? Well, first of all, he calls the high court. He gets the nobles in and he yeah. says, right, I'm going to divide the kingdom. Uh, she gets Jerusalem and Nablus and he gets um, Tyre and Acre, I think. Um, but then he, uh, once, once that's sorted, he sets, up, he sets up his own constable and then he invades Melisande's half. Um, so he turns up at Jerusalem with an armed force. He, uh, he besieges uh, Melisande's constable, Manasseh, and, yeah, basically turns up and, and, uh, and the, the people of Jerusalem don't feel that they can keep him out of the city. So they let him in and he bombards his mother in the citadel for a few days. Bombards, are you talking about a With siege, siege engines and, oh, yeah, really? and all the rest of it, yes. So it um, went business. Yes. But peace is finally negotiated, possibly through the auspices of the, the church. And after that stage, Melisande agrees to step down. She cedes Jerusalem to Baldwin and she then goes into retirement at Nablus. Yes, and castellates that. Daniel, but how was Jerusalem... Let's go to take a, a, a bit of an overview. How had she changed Jerusalem, or how had Jerusalem changed while she was queen? She does quite a lot to improve the landscape of the city, both spiritually and also strategically. So with something like the Holy Sepulchre, that becomes a massive project in 1131 and the start of it is really marked by her and Fulk choosing that as the location of their coronation. Previously other kings of Jerusalem had been crowned king in the church of nativity in Bethlehem so this is a marked departure from what's gone before and it seems that they felt that for liturgical purposes the holy sepulchre as it stood in a Byzantine restoration was too small 
for their purposes. So what Melisande decides to do is essentially to make it quite a Western-style Romanesque building, bringing in the holy places of the Tomb of Christ, Calvary, all into one structure. But it actually ends up being that mix of Eastern and Western styles that we would expect from what we know of Melisande at this point. So the Byzantine-style rotunda is kept, so are the mosaics so are the domes. So it ends up being this hybrid construction. And that's a long-term project. So it is dedicated on the 15th of July, 1149, to mark the 50th anniversary of the capture of Jerusalem. But details like the bell tower, that would still have been an ongoing process much later. So that's her big prestige project. There's also the castles being built around Beth Gibbelin, Blanchegard, Ibelin, all essentially around a frontier with Ascalon, so against... We know she was involved in those. We know she's involved in those from the charters. William of Tyre gives us this very gendered portrayal that Melisande does the church and Fulk does the castles. But when you look at the charters, both of them are equally involved in both. Catherine Lewis, she died in, in 1161. Did she go quietly to Nablus? I mean, she. it says she. he came, he went into Jerusalem, he was acclaimed, she left... Did she leave? Oh, he bombarded, of course, yes. didn't he? Yes. So uh, did she go quietly? Did she threaten to come back? What happened to her? Well, I don't, I don't think we... Again, we don't really know anything about how she felt. And I suppose one thing to say about it is it's interesting. It's one of those situations where, from the same evidence, historians have drawn some quite different conclusions. So some have said that she basically completely capitulates and that she has no power and that the only reason Baldwin puts her in his charters afterwards is so that she doesn't feel humiliated. Whereas others have said that actually the fact that she appears in the charters is an indication that he is still consulting her and that he's still taking her advice. And William of Tyre gives a number of examples afterwards of, of situations where she does still seem to be involved. Um, so after he takes Ascalon, isn't it, he takes her advice about what to, to do with the booty and sort of distributing land. Um, some people have even argued that she's actually even more active after she so-called retires than than she is beforehand. So it's one of those situations that is a matter of interpretation to some extent. What's your view? Um, it's, it's difficult to say. I, I think that the, certainly the way that William of Tyre frames it is that it's a way of actually showing that Baldwin is prudent because William of Tyre emphasises over and over again the um, the accomplishment of Melisande's rule and especially her wisdom and the fact that she equals her ancestors in the accomplishment of her rule. And so I think the fact that Baldwin is, um, is, is getting her consent to his acts is a way of actually demonstrating that his rule is good because it's a property of ideal kingship to take advice and there's no one better to take advice from than Melisande. Natasha, Nash Olsen, Saladin overran Jerusalem in 1187. Was um, was the kingdom already in decline? Um, I mean, that's a question often debated by historians as well. Um, obviously, Melisande also, her reign sort of coincides with the Second Crusade, which was a major event. Uh, and, um, you know, we have kings from the West present uh, in the East. She, which she, kings? Uh, so we have Louis VII of France. We have Conrad of Germany. Uh, they meet together at the Council of Palmyra and they make a decision to attack Damascus, which goes disastrously wrong, unfortunately. Um, unfortunately, if you're in Damascus. Well, indeed, yes. Um, and the legacy of that is that help from the West, that the argument has been that help from the West isn't so forthcoming, that crusaders are not so interested. This big crusade with kings on it was a failure. Um, and this means that those in the Latin East have to look elsewhere for support, i.e. to Byzantium. Um, some people have poked holes in that argument to say that actually there is still quite a lot of crusading activity just because kings didn't go. Um, it doesn't mean that there wasn't crusading activity. Certainly um, Thierry of Flanders, Philip of Flanders put together some very big expeditions. But was the kingdom in decline? They are facing a stronger enemy. They are facing a more united enemy under Nur ad-Din. This and where means, does Saladin come in? Uh, <laughs> so uh, Saladin is essentially uh, sets himself up as the successor to Nur ad-Din. But this kind of later period is all about the race for Egypt and controlling the power and money that comes out of Egypt in order to shore up um, the holy city. And there's quite a lot of offensive actions by uh, some of the settler kings. Melisande's son, Amalric, five times tries to capture Egypt before Nuruddin's general, Shirku, manages to do it. But uh, he's not successful. And at that stage, we have then a period of decline as 
uh, Syria and um, Egypt are united in trying to push the Latin Christians out of the Holy Land. So it then goes back to the intricacies of alliances and misalliances and, and yes. complications beyond this programme at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle Parker, what does... Melis, what does Melisande's life tell us about queenship in her time? Well, it tells us that it's something of a balancing act. So I mentioned earlier with the discussion of the sources that Bernard of Clairvaux tells her that she should act essentially as a man. But the lesson of Matilda in England is that you can take that too far along the spectrum and then the sources will go against you for being deprived of any femininity at all and being far too masculine. So there's something of a balancing act there. I think what she does that's quite successful is her patronage is not just directed at Frankish Christians, but also Armenians. So her support of something like the rebuilding of the Cathedral of St. James, which is an Armenian church, gives that sense that this is a woman who has an eye on the new Frankish settlers and also the indigenous Christian population. What she does with the covered market in Jerusalem is to think about the pilgrims, so people who don't have a fixed abode while they're on a pilgrimage in Jerusalem, and covering the market, which includes two side streets and the street of bad cooking, gives these pilgrims a place of security, a bit of stability, somewhere where they can eat. And the fact that that has a vaulted ceiling with slants on it means that the smells are going to have somewhere to escape, so it's not going to be quite as unwelcoming a place as the street of bad cooking might suggest it might be. But it also gives people shelter from the rain. So she has that balance between being somebody who can be very masculine when she has to be, but also someone shown as taking care of the general population. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Danielle Park, uh, Catherine Lewis and Natasha Hodgson. Next week, it's the King of Chinese Naturalists, Li Shuyun, who aimed to heal the sick in the time of the Ming Dynasty in the 16th century. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I I was going to raise the point about elective kingship because I don't think we we discussed the nature of the kingship of Jerusalem Um, so just this this idea you know the fact that when the first crusaders arrived they have to decide who's going to rule so they have an election and Godfrey of Bouillon is the one who is chosen to rule Um, and there's this constant tension about is it an inherited kingship or is it elective you know they still need to get the assent of the nobles every time that they have a new king and particularly Melisande's father, Baldwin II, his accession to the throne was a bit dodgy. Uh, because, Well, because Baldwin I had followed his brother, Godfrey of Bouillon, but there was another brother, Eustace, who was also uh, a first crusader, and he was back in the West. And the crown was actually offered to Eustace to come over from the West and take up uh, the, the throne. So, he, so Baldwin II kind of gets it in a bit of a coup. Um, you know, he kind of dives in there first because he's present and uh, gets the support of some of the important nobles in order to become king of Jerusalem. But I think perhaps that's why he's quite obsessed with making sure his line stays on the throne and and, and in particular designating Melisande as his heir is an important step for him. Did it take people by surprise, I should have asked this in the programme, that that he, he insisted that his daughter should be the heir? Which people say, hold on a minute, or words to that effect. I don't think so. I mean, there there, there is precedent for it. We have earlier in, well, almost overlapping the same time, actually, um, Castile's being ruled by a woman, Araka, who's her father's heir. And obviously that's exactly what um, Fulk's uh, daughter-in-law, Matilda, in England, that's what happens to her as well. Mm. Henry I gets the barons to agree that she is his heir. And there is the point, of course, that in the Crusader states, given sort of rates of, of male mortality, either through campaigning or, or disease related to campaigning, we actually have situations quite frequently where women do end up inheriting from their fathers. So I think in that circumstance, people would be even more used to it than they might otherwise have been. But there's, there's certainly no evidence that anybody questions that although I think it's interesting because you have this system then where you're sort of having your cake and eating it because Melisande has Baldwin's bloodline but they still get to choose the king as well and then of course we have that happening later in the 12th century Mm -hmm. as well because then we have the succession going back through the female line a number of times in a row and so the same things happen again that the women are passing the claim and they'll be the queens so then the barons get to choose 
who is going to be the king. Mm. As long as they agree. Obviously, <laughs> obviously yes. <laughs> but it's always a problem. I think the 12th century, though, is, is you know, as we move into the, the 13th century, after Saladin takes Jerusalem and the kingdom is much depleted, um, I don't think that those later female heirs get to uh, have the same kind of level of control as somebody like Melisande, who is this such such a key important figure. I mean, we know less about them, unfortunately. We, we are very fortunate for all of his faults. William of Tyre, you know, does tell us a lot more about her than 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 you might otherwise, uh, you know, expect of a medieval chronicler. Uh, one thing we haven't touched on is the relationship with her sisters as well. Oh yes, so, um, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, away you go. <laughs> <laughs> Alice, surely. We, we can't, we can't, we can't, we can't mention Each of you can choose a sister. Yeah. There's three other sisters. We probably all want Alice, don't we? <laughs> I don't mind. Well, you do Alice. Okay. <laughs> well, Alice is really where William of Tyre draws his most distinctions between the two sisters. So we have Melisande, who is this paragon of queenship. She's wise. She emulates her ancestors. She does the impossible, almost, for a woman, and that she succeeds in emulating her ancestors. Whereas her younger sister, Alice, who is the princess of Antioch, is a wily and malicious woman. Oh, she's just awful. She is. She's <laughs> what makes her awful? That's interesting. She wants to be the regent of Antioch mm. for her young, her young daughter, Constance. Yeah. And... She well, does. Her father doesn't want her to do her it. Father doesn't want Folk her. doesn't want her to do it. Um, you know, so she's trying to take on this position of regency after the death of Beaumont II. Uh, but yeah, um, she's and but it's causing you know it, it's it's also involved potentially with some mm. of the the fallout from you know the, the disgruntlement caused by Folk from excluding Melisande from power. I mean, we don't know that they were in cahoots. There's no mm. evidence to There's say that. that one charter, isn't yeah. there, where Hugh of Jaffa is at Alice's court. He's yeah. a witness to one of her charters. So there has been a suggestion that she's this magnet for yeah. disaffected nobles and they're all in support of her sister Queen Melisande so they all go to Alice yeah. who has reasons to be against Falk mm. herself because he's stopped her taking control yeah. of Antioch so but Falk kind of neutralizes her quite effectively by bringing over a new prince of Antioch and marrying uh, this new prince off to her daughter what about the other two daughters then Catherine I'll do I'll do Iveta, who's the okay. youngest then. So she's the she's the youngest daughter, she's the only one who's born after Baldwin becomes king. Mm. And um, when she's only about what five or six, Baldwin is actually taken prisoner, he's captured, and as part of the terms of his release, a group of noble children are given as hostages in his place, and one of them includes his daughter, which was was fairly normal at the time actually. Um now when she comes back, um she she's the only one of the three who doesn't get married and as we've heard Melisande founds at Bethany a monastery for her and it is founded for Iveta essentially and the plan is always that she will become abbess of this um, this convent. Now, in a later chronicle, there is a suggestion that she'd been raped while she was um, captive. And some people have argued that this may be the reason why she didn't get married. But it is a much later source. And actually, even within that chronicle, um, Baldwin is then trying to arrange a marriage for her. And Iveta says, I, I don't want to get married, I want to become a nun. And it may be just as possible that, yes, yeah, she did have a vocation. Uh, it was also very normal, especially in a family with a lot of daughters. So he makes these marriages for his other daughters. Melisande is the queen, Alice goes to Antioch, Hodierna goes to Tripoli. And it makes sense then that the fourth daughter, you'd put her in a religious house. That's also a very mm. prestigious position. The house is set up with huge endowments that she will then manage. And it's essentially another way of furthering the family's power in the area. Mm. Oh, so I get Hodierna. She goes to Tripoli. Um, and I think she, she possibly has a lower profile, I think, than, than the other two. But there's still quite a lot of interest to, to so be... So what was the advantage of marrying her out to Tripoli? Well, again, so it gives it gives a connection to the county of, of Tripoli, uh, which is one of the other main crusader states. Um, she... Um, I mean, we, we don't know a huge amount about her marriage with Raymond, apart from uh, as, as we move towards, again, this crucial kind of Second Crusade period. So in the late 1140s, first of all, we have in, in a Western source an accusation that Melifon poisons um, someone, yeah. is it? Um, Alphonse, Alphonse of Toulouse, who's trying to take over Tripoli, so thereby protecting her sister. And then 
we find from William of Tyre that Raymond and Hodierna have had some kind of falling out, he says about jealousy, but we don't know precisely mm. what it was. And Melisande has kind of been wheeled in to, to do some matrimonial uh, um, politics. Um, uh, the upshot of which is that Hodierna goes off with Melisande, Raymond comes to see them some of the way, goes back to uh, Tripoli and then is murdered by assassins. Uh, and leaves again a minor on the the, the heir to the county of Tripoli. So this is the young Raymond III, who also has a role in the later uh, uh, Hattin. What about this beautiful Salter, Melisande Salter, Catherine? Oh, no, that's one for for Danielle, (laughs) definitely, yes. It is a beautiful book. So it's about the size of a modern paperback, really, but the covers are all ivory and as far as we can tell I think the general consensus is this is Falk's heartfelt apology to Melisande. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry I cut you out of all the charters and the government. Please have this beautiful ivory Psalter. Yeah. Which What does it show this Psalter? What does it really It's very ornately decorated so the covers are all carved ivory with mm. precious gems marking out the eyes of individuals and the eyes of the birds and the beasts. So the front cover is King David is the exemplar king, or crusader kings really have David as the archetype of what a king should be. And in between those rondels, you have the battle between the virtues and the vices, who are all portrayed as women. And the back cover is... The vices are all portrayed as well. Yes, they are. Are the yeah. virtues all men? No, the virtues are all women as well. Oh, I see. Yeah. They get it. Yes. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, quite, quite bloodthirsty. There's quite a lot of lances <laughs> being <laughs> thrust through yeah. different individuals. And the back cover is a crusader king who possibly is modelled after Fulk. He's dressed yeah. in quite a Byzantine style. And he's performing acts of mercy so he's visiting prisoners in prison feeding the hungry caring for the sick so the two covers act as if you are going to be a ruler of jerusalem if you're going to be the ideal king Mm. these are your prototypes this is what you should follow Mm. it's held together with silk binding so there is an islamic influence there in terms of the geometric patterns that are being used Mm. and the inside is quite byzantine there's an awful lot of gold use the images that are chosen are all from the New Testament, but they're very Byzantine yeah. in yeah. how they're constructed. We think the artist is Basil because on one of the images it's signed mm. near the foot saying Basil. Do we know for certain it was Melisande's? We don't know for certain, but there is a calendar and there are three significant dates that suggest this is at least one of the four daughters, if not Melisande. So one of the first dates is the 15th of July. So the date that the city of Jerusalem is taken. One is the death of Morphia, not the year, but we have the date. And the other is Melisande's mother. Melisande's mother, and the other is Melisande's father. So his death date. So we don't have the death of Falk in there in November of 1143, which would suggest it was produced before that date. And the other likely candidate for it is probably Aveta, but it's not the type mm. of book that we would expect a nun. Yeah, the prayers are directed at a, for a laywoman's it's, it's use, a laywoman. aren't they? Yeah. So, yeah. I think the producer who's going champing at the bit to come in. <laughs> <laughs> Does anyone want tea or coffee? Tea, coffee? tea please. Tea, tea, please. Tea, please. Tea, please. In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson. Hi, everybody. I'm Caitlin Jenner, and I am a guest on Simon Mundy's Don't Tell Me the Score podcast. We talked about everything. The Olympics trans issues and all the lessons that I have learned along the way. I really enjoyed recording the podcast and I hope you enjoy listening to it. You can hear it on BBC Sounds. Just search for Don't Tell Me the Score.